You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Say hello to my little friend. To infinity and beyond. Like tears in rain. On Wednesdays we wear pink. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Tears looking at you, kid. You talking to me? You're gonna need a bigger boat. You'll always have Paris. Hello and welcome back to Films and Friends. My name's Josh. I'm joined by my ever-present co-host, Tobias. Hello, I'm here. And we are very professional, as you can tell. And we are joined today by our, I think it's fifth or sixth friend in, not in inverted commas, it really is a friend, it's Georgina. Hi. <laughs> I'm glad to be on the show. <laughs> welcome, Georgina. So, just uh, to kick it all off, what's your occupation, we ask everyone? Um, so, uh, this is kind of a bit, I suppose, all over the place at the moment um, because I'm currently presenting a radio show on Fuse FM. Um, I've also done quite a lot of writing for the Mancunian and I do a bit of editing, so that's sort of where I'm at at the moment. There we go, yeah, a bit, bit of a domination of the, the Manchester Media Group right there. Domination of media, that's, that's my aim, yeah. <laughs> What's your radio show about? Um, so it's called Crazy Classic Live, uh, which is based off a Janelle song. Um, absolutely love Janelle. Um, and um, it's about um, sort of, well, to be honest, it started off as being something about um, like female empowerment, particularly like within the music scene, within um, media and within um, film and entertainment. But now it's kind of like sort of branched out more into about what's going on in the local area and kind of uh, what events and things you can go to and see. Fantastic. And um, we were going to ask you how um, you know us, but of course, it's, uh, it's the media it's, group. It's yeah, this. It's, it's, it's like it is a massive like family, isn't it, really? Like the like every every um, section seems to kind of know each other in a different in like a different way. Because I started off in music and now kind of gone over to film, did a bit of lifestyle. I'm always in the studio recording something. Josh will know that because I'm constantly asking for studio space. Um, so, but that's yeah. quite funny that you write for lifestyle because Aisha, who um, is the current editor of the lifestyle section of the Mancunian, um, mm. was deputy editor of film last year. So it all it, it all really comes together. Oh my gosh, yeah, it really does. It's like it is like multi-directional, isn't it? Yeah. And then eventually, hopefully, she'll come on the podcast, and then we'll be able to discuss that with her, and it'll just be one really big Manchester media group, just circle. I was going to say, it's cyclic, the whole thing. It just moves in a circle, doesn't I it? I always say that at the end of the episodes. I'm always like, and we've come a full circle once again, talking about what we started talking about. <laughs> but yeah, so to sort of kick us off before we go into sort of your personal uh, favourite films and least favourite films and stuff like that, what we wanted to ask you, because you obviously have a radio show, therefore you must be fairly au fait with music, is what is your favourite like use so. of a sort of popular music? music song in film and I was thinking about this in the bus on the way in I sort of pre-prepared Tobias before we started recording this so but what's your take on that? Um, well there's a couple of like things that sort of came to mind I did think about Back to the Future and about the Chuck Berry song used in that uh, Johnny Be Good and like kind of um, just because that's it's it's a standout moment of the film. It's like quite climactic, but I think the best use has to be um, "Send Me on My Way," "Rusted Roots" um, from uh, Matilda, just because that um, pancake scene is iconic. Like I can't think of anyone like our age that's like just hasn't seen that like pancake scene and like thought that it was pretty. Like I don't know. Like it's it is iconic. I think yeah. Matilda doesn't get sort of it doesn't get as rated as highly as such an iconic film because I think you'd struggle to find people, especially our age, that haven't seen that film. It's a huge childhood film for a lot of people yeah, think... who grew up, like, sort of born in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think it is like a staple 90s film. It's like up there probably with Clueless and that kind of thing, which I know you've just you've just See, seen that I recently. I have just seen Clueless, and I'm going to disappoint everyone. I haven't seen Matilda yet. It's, it's one of those oh, which God. is on my list. Well, fair enough, fair um, yeah, but I did watch Clueless the other week mm -hmm. and actually loved it. It's actually a really solid film. It's a bit eclectic, but kind of works. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, going back to Matilda, um, although I haven't seen it, the fun fact I learned about it the other week is that um, the actress that plays Matilda is cousins with uh, Ben Shapiro. So um, there you go. American quote-unquote political commentator. Ben that is Shapiro. extremely bizarre. I never knew that. It's also directed by Dan DeVito, which is incredible. Really? Did you not know he's Dan Tweet also directed? He's I think he's directed another um, Roald Dahl adaptation as well. Did he do um, did Dan the Champion of the World? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think he did and that I one as well. He was definitely. I think he was involved with the witches as well. I mean, I have to double check this, but um, the the film with um, Angela uh, Angelica, what's it? I can't think what her name is. Uh, Angelica Houston. That's it. 
um, with where she's like the that witch character. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. For, that's a Roald Dahl one as well. But I think he was involved with that. I think he just has one of those really like um, imaginative, like creative minds that can kind of. Darren DeVito is some sort of talking about other things that are and underrated. <laughs> yeah, his career is sort of the breadth of his career is unbelievable. Like starting off in like, I think he started off in like one floor of the cuckoo's nest, didn't he? Was it that or was it something similar to that? Yeah, it, m- it must have been around that time. It was kind of a pretty serious role. And then he's done like comedies, done serious stuff. Now he's obviously big now in Always Sunny. Sort of done directing work. Like <laughs> it's a pretty eclectic career as well. Yeah, and, and he's universally loved. I, I don't think I've ever met anyone that goes, oh, I don't like Danny DeVito. Yeah. Everyone agrees that there's at least one role they've seen him in and have gone, yeah, yeah, I love, I love him. He's brilliant. And, but no. and I think the thing that really shines is the fact that he's done all of these different roles. He's probably been, he's been a producer. He's been in a he's been an actor. He's directed things. So he has that sense of like, well, he's been he's been in every role. So he kind well most roles. So he can kind of, you know get a sense of appreciation probably for what it's like to be in those different places and that you know it's going to encourage I reckon people to you know have an affinity to it definitely. yeah for sure it what I mean from experiences being uh, as Josh and I know as being writers to then editors of the paper having gone through um, one of the jobs that we are now directing it, it makes it a lot easier to get in the mindset of the writer so I, I guess yeah Danny DeVito because of course he, he's, he must have done writing as well he's got writing mm-hmm. credits on um, It's Always Sunny so he obviously knows about um, round table writing as well as um, in individual script writing acting and all that yeah he, he, he must know how to bring it all together so I need to check out Matilda then you really do but to go back to the question again so what was your pick for um, best use of popular song in a film see the one that comes to mind and is the one I I usually think about as the moment in a film where you go, yeah, this this is just perfect. Is um the sound of silence in The Graduate? Oh, um, I, I, so I really love that song, but that's a film that I've not seen. So. Not seen The Graduate. So <laughs> I have a funny story behind watching it. I was um I went to my dad's house for about two weeks before moving into uh, halls for first year at uni, and my my dad and I were chatting, and he he'd mentioned The Graduate a couple of times. He was like, "You have to watch The Graduate. You have to watch it." So he sat down to watch it, and basically the story of The Graduate is a guy who graduates from university and realizes he doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. So he returns home to his parents and he's just kind of depressed, lounging around, oh thinking, <laughs> where do I go? And then he ends up starting an affair with um, his uh, neighbor slash uh, neighborhood friend of his parents. So it's, you know, kind of like a cougar young guy relationship. And it, yeah, it's a bit of a, a strange film. And we finished watching it and my dad just sits there for, for a second and turns to me and goes, well, that's not really the best film to show you before you go off to uni, right? <laughs> I was going to say, is it, is it for you? Is it is it sort of a an aspirational film? Say, is, <laughs> yeah. Is I, it is it aspirational or is it a cautionary tale? That's the question. That's the question. See, do I aspire to be Dustin Hoffman's character in the film? No. Do I want to be as cool as Dustin Hoffman? Yeah, Dustin Hoffman's a cool guy. That's very fair. And to take sort of two songs which are from presumably fairly sort of um, uh, happy, not happy, but sort of upbeat films to my favourite choice which is uh, profoundly depressing. It is um, Perfect Day and Trainspotting. Oh, because yes. I, and I, I will never tire of going on the podcast and saying how much I love Trainspotting and how much I love Danny Boyle, but mm-hmm. there's something about that scene just resinks into the carpet. It's just unbelievable. It's just, I love it so much. Is it uh, the like the Lou Reed version? Yeah, the, the Lou original? Reed version. Oh, yeah, wow. and I think there is a danger because obviously the Lou Reed song, because obviously that he was quite addicted to heroin for quite a long time, and the song itself is about heroin. And is it a, in many ways it could be a bit on the nose with sort of oh, it's a scene of an overdose on heroin, so we're going to put a song that's famously about heroin in it. But I think it still perfectly works. Uh, See, a sentence I never thought I'd say, but on the subject of heroin, another song that is about heroin and also has this kind of upbeat feeling is Golden Brown by The Stranglers. Yeah, oh, wow, yeah. Because that, that's, I mean, it's even a name. I mean, yeah. It's, it's all about heroin. So, but yeah, Train Spotting. I, I watched it for the first time either earlier this year or last year. And it was last year because um, I went to Edinburgh in February of this year and I wanted to see the film before I went to Fe- um, Edinburgh. And... But the entire thing's filmed in Glasgow apart from one scene at the beginning. Yeah, but... <laughs> 
But oh, my, my housemate. Run through where? Do they run through the train station? Is no, it, no, it's the, the only bit that you can actually is famous for actually being in Edinburgh. Is there's a bit during the first chase scene yeah, the where stairs. they run. Yeah, uh, and also oh, there's yeah. a bit where they run up a road which is near the art gallery. Oh, yeah. Right, okay, yeah. So it was that bit that my housemate who grew up in Edinburgh told me, oh, you need to watch. Uh, train spotting if you go to Edinburgh so you can see that place and I didn't end up going to the place because <laughs> I was I was on the other side of town uh, uh, where I was staying but um, but yeah the film I I got around to watching it finally and, and it's one of those films which is just timeless it's just so brilliantly made I mean mm. depressing is all hell but brilliant Mm-hmm. Also, to go back to a Golden Brown, there was a fantastic use of that song in the Black Mirror episode, Metalhead. See, those are the last two episodes of season four, right? Metalhead and uh, Black Museum, right? Yes. See, those are the two ones I never got around to watching. <laughs> See, th- this is this is just what, what having a film podcast is all about. We bring guests on, they suggest films, we suggest <laughs> films, and not everyone has seen them. I know, well, this is the thing now. I've got, like, I've already got, like, a bit of a list going in my head now, stuff that I need to see, <laughs> because I'm like, that's got a great soundtrack. So this is, a, this is probably the thing from being a radio host in that, like, I know the song, I might not have seen the film, but, like, I'm like, Lou Reed! Like, it's just, yeah. So to take us from films you haven't seen to films that you have seen, uh, so what are some of your favourite uh, films, directors, kind of genres, that kind of thing? Um, so I'm a big fan of kind of, like, uh, gothic-y films, and I really like... Um, if it's done right, I really like animation, so, like, Tim Burton, um, really big fan of... Um, and um, really recently, actually, I really enjoyed the Maleficent film, which is it's it's kind of fairy tale and gothic elements in there. Definitely gothic in the aesthetic, but yeah, like those are the sort of things. And probably from the Tim Burton sort of stuff, so Nightmare Before Christmas. Every single year, I watch that before before Christmas, and it is like it's a, it's a standout one. Or Coraline, because that is like just the the detail. In the in the set pieces for that is phenomenal, and I've watched so many videos as well back where like they've shown like hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage like condensed down, and you can they see the micro like movements in it. Um, I don't understand the Tim Burton Nightmare Before Christmas thing because he didn't even direct the film. It's called Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, but it was directed by Henry Selleck. Yeah, which, how he constantly gets credit for it is beyond me. Which Coraline as well, he, I think he was a writer but didn't actually direct it. Um, which was weird when I looked oh it up. It just God. His name didn't appear and I was like, but I know this is a Tim Burton film because it's got the Tim Burton aesthetic. And, and then it turns out he, I, I guess, produced and wrote it or something. Um, mm. So maybe he's more like integral in sort of the, um, yeah, like aesthetic choice. Because I know that there's a film that the, one of the films that he made when he was a student had this particular, it's like stick people sort of, like isn't it? Like a stick people sort of style and um, they always have like kind of like quite heavy childhood based like backstory. You know, Absolutely, like a, yeah. Very specific kind of childhood backstory. Um, and yeah, those all come across in, in those films. Same with like Edward Scissorhands. I mean, it's like a, a lone male figure and like um, this gothic like landscape and Vincent Price is in that which is voice incredible yeah one of the last films that Vincent Price was in as well that one yep. yeah see with Tim Burton I, I have a weird thing I, I find a lot of his stuff kind of really unsettling uh, to watch it just, just the aesthetic it just doesn't sit right with me that said there are two Tim Burton things that um, I hold close to to me because of my childhood. So one of them is uh, Tim Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We, it was given to me as a present on DVD uh, mm-hmm. when it came out on DVD. I can't remember. I must have been about seven, eight, and I watched it. And I just, I remember thinking this is really weird, and it felt almost, I'm going to say like industrial in aesthetic. The fact that the whole. The, the, the scene that I rewatched years later was um, the the bit with the squirrels um, mm-hmm. sorting out the nuts into the big whirlpool thing. That's the bit where Veruca gets like sucked into exactly, the, yeah. The, isn't it? And yeah. that scene, when you rewatch it, you realise that there's just so much silence, and it's almost awkward to watch um, because it's got that kind of like clean industrial aesthetic, almost like this is a really like weird niche. So, I, maybe you guys saw it. There used to be an advert for the PlayStation Three, which was a white room with white lights and yeah, a baby, just like mean. a baby doll, just sitting there mm-hmm. staring at the PlayStation. I'm like, that's it. That was the ad. 
that's kind of the feeling I get um, of some of the scenes in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So it is kind of perhaps like a childhood thing that you saw that and like then like you have like an affinity between that and the film and like that's you know something it's something that stood out to you like as, as aesthetically strong so that's, yeah the whole that, film that is that's kind of cool that he's able to they were able to kind of like recreate yeah unofficially but kind of recreate that, that feeling, feeling. Yeah. yeah it's the feeling and the other thing that um that sticks with me is although i haven't seen a nightmare before christmas it's the the halloween town song this is halloween at my school um this is such a weird memory, but um, at my school, um, on Halloween, in Spain, Halloween isn't like British and American Halloween, where it's dress up as something, just something. Um, it's You have to dress up as something scary. That's the whole point, because then you have Carnival in February, which is dress up as whatever. So yeah. everybody's dressed as something scary. And at my school, at the first break time in the morning, so like maybe like 10 or 11 o'clock, we'd all go down into the playground, like literally the whole school, and they'd play that song over the, like loudspeakers and everybody would have to sing along to it and like the older kids would like put up a dance or whatever and it, that just gave me nightmares when i was really young because some kids w wore like r actually really pretty scary masks Crazy. and i was like six years old i'm not gonna lie to you that sounds quite dystopian it's really yeah it is like <laughs> looking back at it it really is it, it sounds kind of really culty weird. Yeah, it does. Like you'll assemble in yeah. the playground and sing the song from the Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> exactly. But religiously every year. <laughs> exactly. But not 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 to get too political. Um s unless you're going to um like uh, a uh Catholic school in Spain, um you don't do you, you, like you don't go to um church you, you don't in the morning. You just kind of mm -hmm. you just go to school. It's just school. Like religious education isn't really part of it. And there's so many schools in the UK that have um, like assembly and um, uh, uh, I don't know what they call it, like chapel in the morning, I guess. And that is something that's so um, kind of alien to a lot of people. So yeah, our, our, our religion was, um, this is Halloween. <laughs> I think um, a lot of that in this country is private schools. It's mostly private Because we, yeah. the school I went to, we, we used to have assembly once a week. I think it was every month they'd get the local vicar in to talk about stuff. And it wasn't even that religious. It was more like it was more like life lessons through religion. That's so, right. I had that primary school. Yeah, like there'd be like a guy that come in who was like a religious leader. Or the, to be fair, actually, the, as it came to the end of the. Um, my time at primary school, I think they had a different relig religious leader like coming like every few weeks. Mm. So you kind of got like a broad range of like, That's quite nice. which is which is quite cool. But yeah, I remember when I was younger, younger, there used to be this Christian. We used to have to do, learn this. So we had to learn like four or five hymns, and then we'd like to almost sing it to him when he came in. So <laughs> oh, kind yeah, it's somewhere it's somewhere between like cute and like yeah. I think I think when I got to like year two or year three, I was like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore, and that you know. <laughs> But then you 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 find stuff like, it's 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 all like it's all like kind of in a weird way it's kind of ritual I suppose going back to Tim Burton like his films kind of have like a ritualistic sort of like style don't they like, yeah it's not you, just the visual in, yeah. but it's the story so you were saying about the kind of stick people aesthetic if you think of Jack Skellington mm -hmm. I think even if people haven't seen a single Tim Burton film they will recognize Jack Skellington because if you show them a photo they'll be like oh yeah that's that's like Tim Burton his mm -hmm. visual style is so unique specific. and specific that you can recognize it and um just to hand it back to you his storytelling as well has a very specific formula almost mm -hmm. um so you were saying about the stories basically yeah he very much i think likes to have that idea of like a voiceover particularly i mean charlie and the chocolate factory the voiceover plays a big part in telling that the story in his version when you think of the original with gene wilder it's a bit more Gene, Gene, Gene Wilder basically led the story, whereas in the version of Challenge Chocolate Factory that you'll remember, that we remember from our childhood, like um, it's more, it's Johnny Depp doesn't is despite being uh, Willy Wonka doesn't lead the story really. It's the voiceover yeah. that seems to power it forward. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's that. Uh, I mean, he you described that, like, it like deep, that. Like a. a Voice that vo that particular voiceover kind of voice and Course. Charlie, da, 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 da. like it's it's that and it adds to what you called it earlier the gothic fairy tale mm -hmm. um, setting, which even though visually it might not be super gothic, his films usually are, but say Charlie and the Chocolate Factory yeah. isn't kind of. It still has that gothic fairy tale um, 
I guess the, the it, it's the idea that um, fairy tales originally, like the Brothers Grimm tales, are, are mm-hmm. super gory Which and, and is dark. Which is the Disney films are kind of based on the Brothers Grimm tales. Yeah. Like, um, but yeah, it's like they've just had like a re a respray almost, <laughs> like of just like candy colours and like make them bright, but there's still that undertone of like gothic. This probably deserves a trigger warning, so this is what I'm saying, but kind of graphic. But I'm pretty sure in the Brothers Grimm, sort of, I've read something before about sort of how bad they were, and I'm pretty sure in their original Little Mermaid, the Ariel sews her legs back together after becoming a human to try and become a mermaid again. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember, but that sounds like it could like be But they accurate. are that level of like dark. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, a weird, this really weird tangent. I'm really into um, the card game Magic: The Gathering, and they release like a new set of cards every kind of three or four months. And the recent one um, is based on the Br- the the Brothers Grimm fairy tales. And a lot of the cards, like the art style of, of Magic: The Gathering, has always been kind of like gothic fantasy. Mm-hmm. And especially with these, you'll have um, one of them is um, a card called like. Uh, trophy hunter or whatever or bear trophy hunter and it's goldilocks but she's got a sword dripped in blood and three bears heads on the wall um so it's kind of yeah that that dark aesthetic just is everywhere the point, yeah, the point I'm trying to make by but sort of... But it's in, like, mythology sorry. as well a little bit, that, too, with, like, the, the idea of like, being, like, a sword and, like, kind of giving, like, a kind of female empowerment. I'm thinking Medusa somehow. I don't, that kind of came into my head, like, alongside that. Yeah, no, I totally see that, yeah. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make, sort of, by saying about the weird, sort of, how grim the brothers... The, sort of, not, no pun intended. <laughs> how grim the original <laughs> Brothers Grimm stories were was actually, when you think about it, and, sort of, for me, when I watched the original Child and Chocolate Factory, I had to turn it off after the, um... Uh, is it... Which one swells up like a blueberry? Oh, um, I can't remember the name. Violet. Violet Vi- Beauregard. Oh, that's it, yeah. yeah. But that really disturbed me as a child. Now I think about it, when, when you really think about it, the Charlie the Chocolate Factory film, it's kind of body horror-esque. If you think of the state they end up in at the end, like one of them's stretched out, one of them's swelled oh, up like a blueberry, yeah. it is actually... Maybe that's where my dislike of body horror comes from. from that's that, very from, fair. From Because I, I really vividly remember watching the Gene Wilder one for the first time, and I watched through the entire film and I was fine, until the bit where she starts swelling up and I had to turn it off. But I started crying, I think. And I, I was probably only about four or five at the time, but like, it really upset me for some reason. See, th- that's something I, I find interesting to talk to people about. It's um, people's reaction to body horror. Mm-hmm. Um, body horror as basically pioneered by David Cronenberg is, as the name suggests, bodies th- bodies doing things they shouldn't. Hmm. So, um, so maybe an example of, of, of light body horror is uh, contortionists. A lot of people feel really disturbed because they see the bones moving under the skin and it's kind of like this shouldn't be happening. Um, But then say the most famous example of body horror could be um, either the chestburster from Alien or um, The Fly. David Cronenberg is The Fly. Oh gosh, Which I was introduced to through um, The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. My mum and dad um, watched that film years ago and they were like, oh never watch it, never watch it. But they were so against me watching it that I was like, I absolutely have to go and find this and watch it. And I was disturbed after seeing that. Crazy that and um, the one you know in um, Indiana Jones where the the faces are when like the Nazis melt, like, melt at the yeah, end, like wax, oh, that and it's like really scary, white yeah. and then blood and then bones. Ugh, it's like that really, that's <laughs> a, I've always thought like as like much a I've, candle. I've always thought it's such a weird change of pace for the film. If you took that out of the film, it wouldn't really do anything. But if you add it in, it doesn't really do anything. Like, why did they put that bit in? It's such a, it's such a, it's such a less surreal. Yeah. It's almost like, um, like in Fight Club, um, when um, there's the 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 interpolated frame of of just uh, penis, or um, or in The Exorcist when it's the 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 frame of like the face of the devil. It, it's those kind of things which are such a small addition that is just horrifying to some people, and. Yeah, but the, the, the Indiana Jones one, like, that really got me as a kid. It's almost like a, um, the end of um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where the whole film, you're like, yeah, this is slapstick comedy. Sure, there's, like, some tension, but, you know, even a five-year-old can watch this and be okay. And then there's the face melting. And mm-hmm. just that, it's just so vivid. I, th- I, think it's, I think it comes from, like, a place of, like, obviously wanting to have shock value, but I think 
it's probably the special effects guys going, bloody hell, we can do this. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's give this a go. And you think probably they do like, like loads of things for like, like Indiana Jones, probably loads of stunts and everything going on, and you just get that opportunity to, to like melt someone's face or work out how to like make it look like someone's face is melting. You jump at the chance, I imagine, if that's what you're interested in. Yeah, that, that's that's quite terrifying. But, th but like, thinking yeah. of um, negative emotions, <laughs> um, I love the segues on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we we we're, we're we're getting good. At we this. excel <laughs> ourselves every week in this. It's fantastic. Oh, but yeah, thinking of negative stuff. Um, what about um, the opposite? Um, what about films or directors or actors or genres you just can't stand? Um, so, and this is going to be, some people are going to be like, no, th he's a great director, but recently, Quentin Tarantino, i just not really a fan of stuff that he's part recently. And, like, re-watching some of the stuff, like, I'm just, I, I don't know, I'm just, I just becoming less and less impressed as time's gone on but yeah like i don't know there's just i think it was um once is it it's called once upon a time in hollywood isn't yes, it? the latest yeah. one yeah i think it i just i wanted to like it and there were bits of it that i thought were were um great but i do wonder if, I, I don't i don't know where whether this you know the aesthetic train can keep going and I think it's it's very much based in in the way that I love Tim Burton stuff. I, I just I don't know. Tarantino's is now starting to kind of grate on me, I suppose a bit. Yeah, I've never understood the Tarantino hype. People have always be said Tarantino's like best filmmaker working. You know, he's brilliant. And the first Tarantino film which I tried to watch and I still haven't finished after it's starting three times is Pulp Fiction. You've never finished Pulp Fiction? Before. No. And it's weird <laughs> because the writing in the film, I, I can split into two um, uh, different worlds. So you have the world of the spoken writing, so the monologues and the conversations, which are absolutely brilliant. Like the whole mm -hmm. um, scene with Marcellus Wallace, uh, well, what does Marcellus Wallace look like and all that. Just absolutely brilliant. But the writing, as in the way the story is paced, I it just, yeah, it just bores me. It's, I just find it so boring. And visually, I think Tarantino films are also quite... Um, even though they're, you, you look at Tarantino film and you go, this is Tarantino, I don't think it's exciting. Mm. And the, the Tarantino films I have seen all the way through have been um, Death Proof, which I thought was a bit kind of rough around the edges. I know that's kind of the point of it, but mm -hmm. it just felt a bit crude. Yeah. Um, enjoyable, but crude. Um, Hateful Eight, which mm. that is a really I know you've written down option. if you don't like it, yeah. but um, I went to um, a midnight showing of a 70mm director's cut of the film. Yeah. It was a very special edition, wasn't it? Because you couldn't, you couldn't see it anywhere like yep. you had to go to an art house cinema to exactly see it properly. so i so i went to um in oh, i was still living in spain back then and it was one cinema in barcelona phenomena which is a brilliant cinema um that was the only cinema showing it in spain mm -hmm. doing the uh, 17 millimeter showing and um i enjoyed it because um my yeah my family we quite enjoyed westerns like my dad's always enjoyed westerns my granddad used to love them and my brother is obsessed as um listeners of the podcast might remember um and i, I really really enjoyed it hatefully i thought it was brilliant but then i looked up what they added because i was like this film really dragged on in the first quarter they literally just added like 20 extra minutes of scenes in the snow as in nothing happening in the snow so the opening shots were long for no reason so um so yeah returning to tarantino um and why um i, I don't really like him just overhyped and that was again with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was just overhyped. I think he has because I do actually quite. I actually do quite like Quentin Tarantino as a filmmaker, and I think the the one of the problems is he has become overhyped. And I think the problem, the thing, I, the one thing, the message I sort of came away from when watching uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was it goes back to um, Jurassic Park. And there's a fantastic bit in Jurassic Park where uh, Ian Malcolm, which is... Uh, did I say it? I told you this, didn't I? Yeah. Where Jeff Goldblum says, they spent so long wondering if they could do it, no one stopped to ask whether they should do it. And that's how I feel about Quentin Tarantino's later career, is he's yeah. such, an, such a distinguished filmmaker and so many people love him. 
is that if he says, oh yeah, I want to make a three hour long Western that's kind of boring, and people will be like, oh yeah, go for it. Yeah, oh, it's great. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I think that's the danger of filmmakers towards the end of their careers, is that you can easily, when you become someone who can make a studio a lot of money, you become someone who is will be surrounded by yes men, and people mm -hmm. aren't challenging enough to you about whether or not you should be making these creative decisions. They're like, oh yeah, just go for it. Yeah. But having said that, I think his earlier stuff, like um, Reservoir Dogs is fantastic, I really like Pulp Fiction. Have you ever watched Kill Bill? No. Kill Bill has some pretty solid choices. I think if you judge him on his latter career, so stuff like Inglorious Bastards, um, which one for? Uh, Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time Hollywood, you will come away with a more negative impression of him as a filmmaker than if you watch his earlier stuff. Also, I mean, in, in Kill Bill and like in Reservoir Dogs, it f it's the walking shots. Like, ah, uh, absolutely. I don't, it's just the very, um, of his style and like, um, it, it's so. I don't know when when I when I watch those, like I don't know, I get that like, kind of a bit of a chill because I know that it's or I know that it's coming to that part in the film, mm. and I don't know what it is, but like like you're saying in the in the latter in the latter films that he's made, you just don't get that like that sense that chill like of like oh there's something something's brooding something's happening there's a foreboding thing going on it's not it's not it's like he's lost his magic yeah yeah that magic touch yeah. for, for scenes that you watch him and you go yeah this is brilliant like. Going back to the the Marcellus Wallace, what does Marcellus Wallace look like? That scene in Pulp Fiction yeah. you get the is back incredible. Of the head and the, and um, John Travolta's facial expression. Yeah, yeah, and, and when when he goes, and I will smite thee with a, a righteous vengeance of furious anger. Yeah, that that is just chills, and and every single time I see um, a quarter pounder hamburger, I think of a Royale with cheese. Every single time, <laughs> because of just how. Those scenes are delivered, and they're so. There's something so magical about it that makes you think these are. Samuel L. Jackson makes you believe that he like fully invented that. Like it's not yeah. from France. He's just created it, and he's telling this story as his own. 100%. Yeah. And yeah. that is that's and that's. I think that shows like as well like a really great relationship between the director and the actors because they just get each other. I think in that in that scene, it just you can you can see that everyone's like. It's a it's a def, it's a collaboration, and that's what like good film I think and art should be like a before collaboration. We, yeah, Sorry. before we move on from Quentin Tarantino, the one thing I would just like to say is sort of a um, recommendation of a film that not a lot of people actually know because he didn't direct it, but he wrote it is uh, from Dusk Till Dawn. Yeah, it's a fantastic film. It's definitely worth a watch if you um a bit curious about sort of Quentin Tarantino not directing but writing. I'll check that one out. It's been on my list for a while. It's very strange. But whatever you do, do not watch the trailer for the film before you see the film. Yeah. Because the trailer absolutely destroys the point of the film. I mean, I know the plot of the film, and that's kind of like the point of the film. Yeah, the point of the film is you don't know what's going to happen, and it just absolutely ruins it, and I really regret w watching the trailer before I watch the there film. There you go. But sort of uh, looking at other stuff on your list of things that you uh, don't like, is something that you and Tobias have in common is that you're not a fan of um, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, or, and sort of you have written Martin McDonough here, which yeah. I find a little bit difficult to take because he's probably <laughs> one of my favourite filmmakers. And I was just wondering what your um, take on why you're not a fan. Well, I watched uh, Three Billboards um, mainly because I'd seen that it was like, it, I think it had, uh, the year that it came out, I had like loads of nominations. And, it, was, like, it was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. And I think uh, Frances McDormand won um, Best Actress for it. Yeah. And she, like loads of people were hyping her up massively. And I was like, I've got to, I've got to see this and see what it's about. And the first time I watched it, I watched it on a plane and was like, um, I don't know, like it did make me feel, I, I will say it did make me feel quite emotional in places, but I think mainly because of the, the content of the story, because it is quite a heavy like topic. It's like basically about her losing her uh, daughter and like kind of the, to trying to find her, but also this harrowing story that comes from that. And I, and I found myself like feeling quite emotional, but I thought I've got to watch this again in like at home or somewhere else, like, um, and see whether it still has that impact. I don't know what it was. I just found some parts of it really shouty or like and really like drawn out. I don't know. I just, yeah, yeah, I agree with that feeling. So I saw it at the cinema, um, and I the way I try to describe it is that it didn't feel uh, real, quote unquote. And the way I, I try to describe that is that I I believe that when film when when a film is being made, the story, the setting, 
the script, everything comes together to create its own little universe. So, see, one of the examples could be like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's a universe where superheroes exist, where this, you know, they can travel through time with the stones and, and all, all that. However, you then have smaller universes, which are um, universes where people's logic makes sense. So, in slasher films, people being dumb enough to go check the basement when they hear a sound <laughs> without a torch and then slipping and dying to the killer. Mm -hmm. um, sure, it's a stupid decision, but within the universe of that film, um, it's a rational decision, because that's how characters' logic works. Mm -hmm. And I felt that there wasn't... Um, there wasn't kind of this unifying uh, universe in Three Billboards, how every, every character was acting in their own way... Yeah. And thinking in their own way. Um, and it all felt really disjointed and just kind of... I didn't know where the film was trying to go. It, it seemed like they all were very aware of like their location and kind of how they can, you know... There seems to be a lot of character work that was done. I think Frances particularly, there was a lot... Clearly a lot of character work done and she was digging from like a deep place to get those emotions through and, the, and like her anger and her upset. But yeah, like whenever there was... I don't know, it, it's, I think some of the scenes seem to appear quite stilted between, particularly, what was he, who, was, who played the officer? Uh, uh, Sam Rockwell or William Sam Rockwell, yeah. Um, the but, older one, the one who, um, I'm not going to say that because it's a sports film, um, the one, yeah, one of them's Wood, the senior one is Woody Harrelson, Woody Harrelson and then yeah. the one who is in the fire at one point is... Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Woody Harrelson, like, he, he, their um, relationship, with her, it's a relationship with um, Francis. Like when they had scenes, I don't know. I didn't believe it. I just was a yeah. bit. I found it quite stilted. That felt quite forced. And the one scene which actually my friends laughed because I was cinema with my friends, and it was relatively um, empty showing. So it was basically us and like some other people at the other end of the cinema. Um, made me roll my eyes and groan. Was um, the flashback scene where Francis McDormand. Um, is talking to her, arguing with her daughter. The daughter walks out of the door and she shouts to her daughter, I hope you get raped. And it just, that line felt like it came out of nowhere mm -hmm. and didn't feel right to what the character should be saying, if that makes any sense. Yeah, there's, it, there, there are moments like that, I think, in the film where like this just, it's a bit, it's a bit too on the nose. Like, I, I understand that they're trying to really hit home what actually happened and probably like the, um, the severity of like language sometimes, but it, yeah, it just felt it, it. It felt too too harsh. I think, it, it think people understood if there'd been like maybe if there'd been silence or there'd been something in the way that it was lit. Yeah, a different kind of way. The the mezzan scene, if you if you will, like would change. Yeah, it would have. You know. So here's the question: Do you think that was um, because it was um, kind of like an Oscar bait push? So things that would get people um, talking. Um, in a positive light, like, oh yeah, that's, that's on, because it has to be on the nose for like the Academy to be like, yeah, this is, this is an Oscar-worthy film, or for popular appeal to, to think of, um, like, this sounds a bit, a bit mean saying that I'm um, treating audience, the mass audiences as if they're dumb, mm. but maybe it was to get wider appeal. It, it could have been a little bit of a, and this, yeah, it's a bit mean perhaps to say this, but it could have been a bit of a box-ticking exercise, like yeah. this fits this particular category and we'll go with these things. That's... I'm not sure it was as on the nose as perhaps it first appears. Because I think the entire point of the film is, the whole point of the film is about anger. The point of the film mm -hmm. is about anger and vengeance and how that never comes to anything good. Because I think that's the sort of story arc that all the characters follow, especially um, uh, Sam Rockwell and Francis Dorman. You think how the film ends. It is about anger, misplaced anger, and the, the place that, that can lead you, which leads to nothing positive. And I think perhaps that is, maybe it's perhaps slightly on the nose, but like, that's kind of the point. The point is that at the beginning, the point is actually that Francis, in many ways, Francis McDormand's character in that film is actually an anti-hero. Like, on an objective level, she obviously to her she's been through something terrible and you don't blame her for it, but she isn't the nicest of pe people. Like, she is actually quite horrible to everyone she meets. Oh, for sure, yeah. And I think that's kind of, like, the point of the film, is that it's sort of she is such an angry character and she's so embittered by the stuff that's happened to her in her life that she does all these things, which are objectively... Like, even the, the, the fact you've gone through trauma doesn't excuse the actions you take. And that 
is probably one of the running themes of the film. And I think that is the point, is that she is not supposed to be this sort of like, oh, really sad, sort of, oh, this is, this something bad has happened to me, therefore I will now roll over and I will never leave the house again. She becomes embittered by that even further and it takes her to a place which isn't positive. And I think that's kind of like the point of the film. And also, sort yeah. of, Martin McDonagh's films in general, if you think of like In Bruges or um, Seven Psychopaths, or there's one more that he did that I cannot think of off the top of my head. They are all sort of like that. They're all sort of a very... They are very sort of on the nose and sort of mm. just kind of ridiculous. See, but in Bruges, I bloody love. I watched and I thought, this is brilliant. So going to Three Billboards, is I didn't expect it to be like in Bruges at all, but it didn't feel like it was made by the same person to me. Because in Bruges felt very much... I think maybe that In Bruges felt very self-aware. It was a kind of film where it's like, this is absolutely ridiculous, but we're going for it, and we're sticking through it, and we're going to go mad with it. Whereas maybe um, Three Billboards took itself too seriously? I don't know. I think the, the sort of running theme with all of his films is sort of brutality. Because even for mm-hmm. a comedy, In Bruges is actually quite violent. And some of the scenes in it are quite disgusting. Oh, for sure. You know, and that, I think the that's same, the one thing I remember, that it's violent. And I think the same thing with Three Billboards is that it is really it is on the nose, but it's because the sort of brutality of everything that happens in it. And not even that film, there's not actually that much real... Actually, there was quite there was a bit of violence towards the end. But it's not sort of... And even, like the, even what the billboards say, it's incredibly graphic. Mm. And I think that's maybe one of his motifs. And I think that's one of the things that sort of... Maybe that's one of the things yeah. that helps his films sort of stick out to me as a person. Because I do really find him as a filmmaker really exciting. Well, I do, this is the thing. I do think I do. Um, I think it, I think it is about the language for me, and I do find it abrasive. So I can can say actually, it does actually give me quite like I have quite strong opinions about him because like that that film I just watched it over and, and it and it like upset me. So maybe on some level it is interesting at le- at the very least because it's you know offering. It's 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 giving it's, it's giving people that opportunity to like have that have these like discussions about about the the, the themes and um, yeah but I do but I do think like particularly just just to go back to that that particular scene like I do think it's it is so pinpointed like mm. pinpointed language I don't I don't know it just for me for me it just didn't feel um, I don't know the, part, the parts that didn't feel real and the parts of it that felt like, or they just felt overdone. Yeah, it's yeah. understandable. And mm-hmm. think, thinking of um, unreal films, you, um, w- one of the things you stated is that you don't like action films, and specifically stated Die Hard and Fast and Furious. Yeah. Um, elaborate. Mm. <laughs> so Fast and Furious, I think maybe maybe it's just a bit, I'm just a bit angry that they just keep making them more <laughs> and more of them, and I'm like, I don't feel like anyone's asking for them anymore. Maybe people are, but like, it's, it just feels like it's, um, a piece of merchandise, like it's something on a t-shirt. Like he doesn't feel like there's any more story to explore. Um, and I think there was, which, which was the one which they did, which was kind of like a memorial one. Was it like a Plus six, six or seven? It's either six or seven. Yeah. yeah, I can kind of understand that because it felt like that was, you know, sort of um, uh, giving credit to that to the uh, to the actor uh, what Paul Walker. Paul Walker. Yeah. And he, because he was such a big part of the of the, that that franchise, and that I think was really fair. But it's just the continuation after that. And yeah. Like a few of the films in between, like I just didn't. I, I I'm like, who's asking for this? Who you know? Yeah. Who wants, you we know? we had a bit of a chat about this last week with Zona, and basically, we just kind of said it, it's made for for everyone who buys the FIFA games <laughs> are the people who watch Fast and Furious. And they but, keep making FIFA games as well. Exactly. <laughs> but to be fair to Fast and Furious, the original ones, um, so specifically, say, um, Tokyo Drift, have you seen it? I was going to say, Tokyo Drift actually does stick out in my head because I think that the cars in that and the like, the bright colours and yeah. stuff are so, uh, like... It, it is it's, charming. It's complex and it's yeah. like... And it's, it's, it's like um, iridescent and and the story is really <laughs> low key as well. It's, it's just a cop infiltrating um, a, a gang of street racers. And as someone who grew up playing a lot of um, of the Need for Speed video games, mm-hmm. this film was basically the Need for Speed film. Yeah. Um, even though Need for Speed also had a film recently, but let's not talk about that one. Um, but yeah, it's that kind of it's scaling. Maybe the issue you have with action could be the scale of it. The large scale of the later Fast and Furious films um, just make it soulless. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it feels like there's a lot of like, oh, let's let's look at this overhead shot of like cars racing down the road. I'm like, Top Gear, like you know, kind of it all fits into that same kind of like category of like, am I watching? You know what what am I watching now? Like, it's, there's been no there's been no dialogue. There's been nothing nothing to really capture me. Like, I think I yeah. do need like something either aesthetically interesting or something interesting in in language or storytelling to go on. If it's if it's just loads and loads of shots for longer than five minutes, I'm a bit like, where are we going? What are See, we doing? The thing with action is that the smaller the scale of the action, um, the more impactful <laughs> it is. And especially if there's um, emotions behind it. So, you know, The Rock punching Jason Statham in the face is The Rock <laughs> punching Jason Statham in the face, and it looks cool. It's a sound effect. As yeah. Well. But if there's an emotion to it, so a story, a reason as to why they're fighting, um, it it really elevates the action. And um, when it comes to visual actions, um, Jackie Chan um, has explained he, why he directs his action choreography and films the way he does. And one of the things uh, Jackie Chan does is that, say he throws a straight punch to someone's jaw, and the camera cuts in between um, his fist leave, you know, leaving from his body and connecting with the guy's jaw. And there's two shots of, of the same punch. Mm-hmm. In between the shots, instead of continuing the punch straight away, the second shot shows his arm slightly further back than it should be if it was one continuous shot. That way the audience can register um, the impact uh, a lot quicker and it, and it makes the, the punches seem more real and, and, and Jackie Chan also plays with physical comedy. It's all about um, the action being, tells a little story in itself. Yes, yeah, so there's like a bit of viscerality like in the, in that you can, you can see it and it has like a, it has its own little arc. Exactly, it's the little arcs in the fights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then about emotion, the film I always recommend to people is Old Boy, 2003 Korean revenge film. And it's an action film but it's Pretty small scale. There's no choppers raining down from the sky, no um, machine guns at the end of hallways, no fast cars. It's there. There, there is one long hallway one-shot fight scene, but because it's a one-shot, very well choreographed fight scene with a little arc within the arc, mm-hmm. um, it's so impactful that you watch it and you realise that the action isn't the point. The action is a way of telling the story. So. Action films, to sum it up, action films, if they have meaning behind them and they're not about the action, action is a good tool to tell a story. Mm -hmm. I think since making that comment, actually, I'd like to kind of amend probably what I've said and say I think it's, I think on like reflection, it's more about when a a franchise is overdone rather than a specific, if 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 an action film's done well, and like, say someone like Jackie Chan, who has a real strong sense of, I want to direct this action, I want to create this particular feeling, emotion, or story arc. Um, it, it's, you know, it's it's strong. Whereas when it's, it can become like a little bit lazy or a little bit like falling into the same patterns and we'll just make another six films with this same kind of format. Is that one of the reasons why you put Die Hard on the list? Yeah, I find, because I, I, I think, I don't, I don't know, I just didn't connect with it, even with the first film, to be honest. Like, okay. I found... I don't know. I don't think Bruce Willis is that impressive. Like as a, a performer, I don't find him particularly. I don't know. He's that hard. Is that hard man character? And and I get that, but I don't. And as well, Alan Rickman in that, I think is a bit of a strange. Yeah. Like, choice. See. Yeah. Think think of uh, the 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 kind of um, strong man character. I I I also feel that Bruce Willis doesn't really feel. It's kind of like. Um, an action man figure on screen is mm-hmm. kind of larger than life and over the top. And I don't think Bruce Willis fits that, whereas someone like, um, say, Jean-Claude Van Damme... You see, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you and sort of to um, uh, ex- sort of, uh, sort of mansplain something <laughs> in that way, but actually, um, in, terms of, <laughs> in terms of in terms of social context, the reason why John McTiernan chose to go for Bruce Willis is because of that. Really? Because the whole point of the film is that John McTiernan's previous film is Predator, which has... Um, it's not Sylvester Stallone, it's the other uh, one. Schwarzenegger. 
Yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and then Jean Claude Van Damme was very big at that time. And the whole point of the film is to take an action film and to make it with a guy who doesn't, because John McClane looked like an ordinary man. Yeah, I know and that's the point. Yeah. Of the that's sort of, yeah. and it's sort of like. And wasn't Bruce Willis like a pop singer like for a bit before like that? Yeah, film yeah, I've done, well, like, he'd done so, like he'd yeah. done a musical film like just before. Wait, and I, really? And yeah, yeah, that's the career. That's pretty amazing. It's, it's weird to look at it now because when you watch the first Die Hard, it's always realised there are five more. And he, he, Bruce Willis has become, and obviously he's in the Red films, which are full of action heroes. Yeah. So he has basically made himself an action hero as a result of that. But the thing about the first Die Hard film is that he wasn't an action hero at all. I think he was in a, a sitcom as well. He'd gone from a sitcom and a musical star to being in Die Hard. And that's what and that. that's one of the reasons why it became so popular was because of like the anachronism of that was something that obviously people don't realise now. No, I remember having a conversation with my, with my dad about this and he was like, do you know he was a pop singer? And then he showed me these videos on like YouTube and I was like, that is not what I expected after seeing that film. Like I'd seen Die Hard and then yeah. seen these like things... Um, Images of him just like dancing and singing to this like really upbeat sort of, yeah. Like, Something else see, I'm quite interested in is sort of why did the why did Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber not connect with you? I, d I just I don't know whether I I just feel like um, it, it, Alan Rickman plays Snake brilliantly like mm -hmm. and it's and it's exactly how I would imagine Professor Snake to be. I read read the Harry Potter books first and like when as soon as I saw him like in that role I was like that is. That's how I imagine Snape to be. It's perfect. But then after that, like I saw the Die Hard films in that order, so the Harry Potter films and then and then the Die Hard films, and um, he just um, I don't I just wasn't like I just felt like he was like kind of there's a similarity in like maybe the vocal register and everything. Mm. I just I can't I couldn't detach I couldn't detach for me even though even though obviously he's putting on an accent mm. like I still couldn't detach I still was like that's Alan Rickman. Like, and it's, it's it's like the star quality takes yeah. over from me being able to see, and it's, I think it sometimes happens with like big stars. They like this their star becomes so big that they can't, you know, necessarily even if, despite best efforts, you can't see them in that other light. That's a very interesting concept. I don't think there's something that's worth exploring actually in probably a f future podcast. Is that the order in which you watch films, especially films from history? becomes makes some films really bizarre and i think a lot of them stuff like we suddenly talked about in the when we talked about horror films is that so many things have been parodied now to such a ridiculous extent in horror that when you see the film that originated the idea that comes across as a parody in itself see the one that um my friends always spoke about one of my friends um had seen all the all the scary movie films and then watched scream and they were like oh yeah the scream is like a less funny scary movie and i was like well First of all, you think scary movies funny, um, but but no. But jokes aside, it's interesting because the whole point of Scream is that oversaturated slashers then basically mm -hmm. prompted Scream yeah. to take the piss out of them, and then and then kind of the resurgence of remakes of slashers then prompted scary movie. So yeah, it's that order the way you watch them yeah. can really change the way it goes. Yeah, and to be fair, going back to the star quality thing as well, I would argue that with some actors it actually works in reverse, and that I I don't know I have like this real um, uh, what's the word um, like respect for the actors who are able to do this. So I can think of like Jimmy Stewart, um, who's in It's a Wonderful Life, and he always played like such warm characters and had that particular. Um, particular old style like gentleman kind of style and then he and then he did Hitchcock's uh, rear window hmm. and completely broke my heart because he was basically a pervert like looking through <laughs> a window at people and I was like no but then I said I can't believe like he's kind of the fall like in my head the fall from grace into that kind of character but at the same time amazing because he made me believe that he was this like you know quite creepy sort of individual but he could play on both sides of the uh, yeah, both sides of that. Yeah, star being so versatile. Sphere. Yeah, versatility. Yeah, the, it's the versatility of the characters, and something that uh, I I also like talking to people about is a uh, actors that are versatile, but you don't see them as the actor. So Johnny Depp is reached yeah. the point where you watch a film with Johnny Depp and you think this is Johnny Depp playing whoever, and it's always Johnny Depp first, character second, whereas. My most recent example, I think, would be uh, Willem Dafoe. Every film you see Willem Dafoe in, well, I see Willem Dafoe in at least, I see the character and then I'm like, oh wait, but that's Willem Dafoe. Like, he, 
so watching the lighthouse i fully believed this character mm. maybe he the fact that he had a big bushy beard face. helped like and the way the the the, the, the um de i think it's a de like dexterity of his it's just the way that he can move and yeah. the way that he can really get into those characters i saw years ago he did um, like in the 80s, he was massively involved in like the happening scene in New York and did loads yeah. of like uh, small base like theatre productions. Um, and in that, like he that he was a, di a director and a producer, and there were so many different elements that he brought to that. And I, I think again, like we were talking about earlier about um, like Devito has that you know because of that ability to to move between those roles, he kind of understands like every every part, and that I think will definitely add to how you then perform in different films and yeah strength of character that's exactly yeah history. yeah no, knowing knowing the ins and outs of um of the scene not the film not the scene in the film but the film scene De as a whole detaching yourself from <laughs> from the person who who you are the the star the, the star that that person's come in fully giving them, themselves over to the character yeah. Tilda Swinton does it as well brilliantly I yeah Tilda Swinton is also a character that really just melts away and becomes the character. Mm -hmm. the, um, I'm trying to think of other other actors that um, also kind of melt into their roles. I'm just still thinking about Willem Dafoe because in in the Lighthouse, he just his character goes goes through so much, and he fully commits to the role. Mm -hmm. I mean, the character goes through a lot of stuff. No spoilers. I'm really gonna have um, to watch this because you've yeah. mentioned it for the last three weeks. We've been in film meetings and the yeah, it's keeps it's up. so yeah. so brilliant. And it, it's that it's it's the fact that he just melts away. Is isn't he um Green Goblin? As yeah, well? he's Green Goblin. Yeah, yeah. And you think about it, you're like Green Goblin. You you forget that it's Willem Dafoe. He has had mm -hmm. such a weirdly eclectic career. Like he was also in. He's really good in the Fox Now Stars film. Yeah, he plays the writer in that who is not a very nice person, and even that, like, the I'm not a big fan of that film. Like, it's not the best film ever. But even in that film, he isn't. He's probably the highlight of the film, to be honest. Like the way he plays it is just very good. Yeah, and mm. Georgina, have you seen Blade Runner twenty forty nine? I have. Yeah. And so, I'm, so sorry. Yeah, so yeah, that that like uh, who, who which char which character are we talking about? So I'm going to talk about um, Dave Bautista. Oh right, okay. Yeah. So Dave Bautista, um, I spoke about him last week as well. He, to me, in my mind, before seeing Blade Runner twenty forty nine and seeing um, uh, Spectre, I think is the Bond film he's in. He was this <laughs> oiled up wrestler with a goatee, and it was this over the top character that, yeah, I mean, he was a, what, he was a wrestler. What was his name again? Sorry, I'm just Dave Bautista. Dave. Right. Yeah. Okay, I'm just look. I'm gonna just look him up just so that I can. You yeah, know, look, look for the image because it, because if you look for him in the WWE. Oh gosh, yeah. So he is like a big. Yeah, for guy, sure. Yeah. And in the WWE, he, he was a full wrestler. Um, mm -hmm. But then you see him in Blade Runner 2049, and he melts away. You would. It, you. I. You can't picture the Batista bomb wrestling <laughs> man behind the gentle. A retired soldier that is in 2049. It's just he melts away, and as well when he plays a henchman, he's not just big buff guy that breaks necks. He, there, there's something about his 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 presence on screen that melts away the stardom and just becomes it's like, a character. It's like a real juxtaposition, isn't it? Then between like the perceived character and like what he actually is capable of doing. I suppose, yeah. Yeah, and. We have to wrap up our conversation, unfortunately. The no. super, super interesting <laughs> talks right here. It's, um, it's come around so quick. Like, I know, I right? The time's gone. <laughs> yeah, we keep it to an hour because it's a good digestible format and we usually can only book the studio for an hour. Um, but I think we that film talk is, more. Like, we, we are sort of, it's one of the things I love most about this podcast is how tangential it is. And we sort of, we come in with a list of things people want to talk about and we only end up getting to like, I think on your list of your favourite films and Lisa films, probably combined about 30 things you've written and we've managed to talk about five of them. I know, to be fair, I yeah. did give you quite an extensive list. Oh, but I was that's like... all right. <laughs> But that's the best right. thing. It's like yeah. it's, it's nice how tangential it is. But just to sort of finish off, is there anything you'd like to plug? 
Um, oh, at the moment. Um, so, <laughs> so today, uh, well, it's Friday today. So my radio show is every Friday from four till five. So um, it'd be great if some people could tune into that. It's called Crazy Classic Live, um, and we just talk about stuff that goes on in Manchester. And we've had actually, I've had Toby on um, already. A couple of weeks ago, yeah, um, I spoke about yeah. Joker. Yeah, which was a really interesting film, which we've also written about as well. Um, yeah, Josh, I'll have to get you on, Josh, at some <laughs> point. I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter, at Josh Sandy, and on Instagram, at Josh W. Sandy. And all my social media is Tobias Soar. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Cheers. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.